Have you ever received a Christmas gift and at first glance you didn't realize how much it was worth? If you had received the original Barbie doll back in 1959 for Christmas, which originally sold for $3, and if you had the foresight or for whatever reason you kept it in its original box, today that Barbie doll in mint in box condition would sell for $10,000. Thank you, Ron. If you, had, if you had received an original Apple One computer back in 1976, and by the way, I had uh, an Apple IIe. I probably should have kept it and kept the box. But if you would have had an original Apple One computer and you got that for Christmas in 1976, the original price was $666.66 for some reason, but... Anyway, today that Apple One computer would be worth $500,000. If you would have received $100 worth of Bitcoin in October 2010. And do you know how much Bitcoin was worth in October 2010? 10 cents. So for, ten, for $100, you could have bought 1,000 Bitcoins. And today, that Christmas gift would be worth $50,893,700. I looked it up. That's the price of 1,000 Bitcoins today. And those are just silly examples, of course, of... Uh, possible Christmas gifts that someone wouldn't have realized or appreciated the, uh, the absolute value when you first receive it. And frankly, I think that's how we as Christians sometimes think about the gift of salvation that we've received and that the Apostle Paul has been writing about in the book of Romans. Sometimes we reduce the gift of salvation to the forgiveness of sins. And that's included. The forgiveness of sins is super valuable, but as valuable and as much of a blessing as the forgiveness of sins is, our salvation is even bigger and farther reaching than even that. And what we're going to be doing today is looking at uh, some words from the Apostle Paul that perhaps more than any other passage in the Bible helps us to, to realize, at least try to realize, just how infinitely valuable the gift of our salvation really is. The infinite value of the gift of salvation. So first of all, in verses 31 through 36, we'll consider the believer's security in Christ. The believer's security in Christ. And just to give you a, a look ahead, um, we're going to spend most of our time on this particular point, frankly. So don't panic. As you notice, the sands of time dripping or falling, and we're still on point number one. It's, it's intentional. 
So the believer's security in Christ. And Paul begins this consideration with, with a question. He, he says, what then shall we say to these things? The these things uh, refers to everything, frankly, that Paul has been writing about in the book of Romans. And the reason why I'm confident of that is two things. Number one, remember, there's no uh, chapter and verse divisions in the original writings of the Bible. Those were added much later by, uh, by human beings, not inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. But number two, all that Paul wrote to us in this passage, in Romans chapter 8, they all depend on what Paul had written previously. So it's, it's the whole thing. It's all that Paul has been writing about to this point. These things refers to the whole enchilada. So justification by faith, freedom from bondage to sin, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the, the, the promise of future glory, the promise that all things work together for the believer's ultimate good, everything that we've been seeing in the book of Romans. What shall we say to these things? That itself is a rhetorical question. A rhetorical question is a, a question that doesn't expect a literal answer. It's, the answer is, is assumed, basically. And then Paul is going to go on and answer those, or this rhetorical question with, with more rhetorical questions. And in the history of human communication, if you think about it, there have never been any rhetorical questions more powerful than these rhetorical questions from Paul that we're going to be considering. A good historical question leaves the hearer speechless. And that's what, that's what these rhetorical questions that Paul asks us do. They, they leave us speechless. So let's consider these uh, four his, um, rhetorical questions that Paul asks as he as he uh, has us dwell on this question, what then shall we say to these things? So here's the first rhetorical question. If God is for us, who can be against us? God is obviously for us because of what he did to save us and what it cost him to save us. God is obviously for us. But then when Paul says, who can be against us, that doesn't mean that no one really is against us. Of course there is. Peter writes about our adversary, the devil. And it's not just the devil, there's the unholy trinity of the world, the flesh, and the devil that the apostle John writes about. We certainly have 
adversaries. And we certainly have a great adversary in the devil. There are plenty of people and uh, powers and principalities who are against us. But Paul's point is that no matter who might be against us, they can't possibly be compared with the gracious God of salvation and predestination who works all things together for our good. The God who is for us is the great, glorious, almighty, incomparable God of the Old and New Testaments. He and none other is for us. And in comparison to that, who could possibly be against us? Here's Paul's second rhetorical question. Remember, he's trying to unfold all that he's been writing. What then shall we say to these things? So here's the second rhetorical question. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up or delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? A couple of things to note here. He who did not spare his own son. Christ was not spared any degree of humiliation and suffering. In, in his earthly life and then in his death on the cross and everything that led up to that. There was nothing that was held back. Christ was spared nothing. And then also notice that it was God who not only did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. God was the one who delivered up his own son. It was not a cosmic accident. It was not because all of the details and machinations of human history had run amok and it ended up with the best intentions gone wrong. No. From the very beginning, in fact, from before the foundation of the world, this was always God's plan. Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation is, is called the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. And several times Jesus himself said, for this reason I have come into the world. In John 3.16, we're told, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And in the book of Acts, chapter 2 and verse 23, Peter preached that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God gave his son. And 
by the way, make no mistake about it, Jesus willingly gave his life. He laid down his life, he said. He said that he's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And he also said, no one takes my life from me. I give it willingly. So the father and the son had the same exact purpose, the redemption of God's people, the salvation of Christ's sheep. So God did not spare his own son. God gave him up for us all. That's what it required for our salvation. It required the purchase price, the redemption price of the death, the suffering of the Lamb of God who gave his life for the salvation of of the world. But here's Paul's point in Romans 8 and verse 32. That's, that's almost a given in Romans 8 and verse 32. Paul is doing what is called in logic, arguing from, from the greater to the lesser. If God did the greater thing, of giving up his own son for us all, if God did that ultimate thing for us, then will he not also, with Christ, graciously give us everything else? That, that's his point. And so what this is meant to do is strike at the heart of the believer's worry and anxiety. Picture yourself living in the first century the first century Roman Empire, in the city that was the seat of the empire's power. And there are many fellow believers, brothers and sisters, whom you know and love, who were imprisoned and tortured and put to death. And it seems to you that it's only a matter of time till it's your turn. It's your turn to suffer and die for your witness of Jesus. And you could, be, you could be wondering, you could be worrying, is God going to provide for you? Is God going to provide for your family? And that's why Paul would write, how will he not also with him graciously give, uh, give us all things? John Flavel, the Puritan pastor and theologian who lived in the 1600s, he wrote concerning this promise. Surely, if he would not spare his own son one stroke, one tear, one groan, one sigh, one circumstance of misery, it can never be imagined that ever he should, after this, deny or withhold from his people, from whose sakes all this was suffered, any mercies, any comforts, any privilege, spiritual or temporal, which is good for them. 
And that's true. The Apostle Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1 that God has given us, he's granted us all things that pertain to life and to godliness. When we're in eternity and the story of our lives has been played out and it's all done and we've entered into the next phase of our existence in eternity, we're, we're going to look back on everything that God has done in our lives and we're going to see that he did not withhold any good thing that translated into our eternal happiness. We're going to see. We don't always see it now, but we're going to see that there was nothing that God withheld from us that was necessary for our ultimate eternal good. And there was nothing that he sent into our lives that he did not use for our ultimate eternal spiritual good. All good how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And notice that word graciously. Sometimes we're tempted to think we're being punished. God hates us. How could God love us if he sent this trial that I'm suffering in now into my life? No, Paul reminds us that he graciously gives us all things. Everything that comes into our lives passes through the filter of the grace of God. It's all meant for our good. It's all the product of God's undeserved love and favor for us. He's not tempting us. He's not harassing us. He's not trying to destroy us. He's constantly at work perfecting us, conforming us into the image of Christ. And that is our ultimate good. And God will spare no expense, no measure, no trial to achieve that ultimate good for us. And it's good that he does. The third rhetorical question is uh, several questions in one, but it's really one root question. Verses 33 through 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? The word elect there is the first time this particular word has been used in the book of Romans. But it's a very important word. Again, it ends up being used um, once more in Romans chapter 9, which we're going to see uh, in short order. And then it's used twice in Romans chapter 11. 
And the idea there, the Greek word means chosen ones. That or those who are chosen. That's what it means. And it's actually a synonym in the context in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 for the called. The called are the chosen, the elect. The elect are called. And we see that in verse 30 as well, right? And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The shorthand one word description of those in Romans 8 and verse 30 is just the word elect. But notice how he talks about the elect. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Well, there is one who brings charges against God's elect. He's that same adversary that we saw with respect to uh, verse 31. He's our adversary, the devil. And another way that the Bible describes him in the book of Revelation is the accuser of the brethren, Satan. And what a creep Satan is. Because first, he tempts us to sin. He's the tempter. Then, after we fall into sin that he tempted us to commit, then somehow in a mysterious way that we don't understand, we see it in Job chapter 1, somehow the devil is able to appear before the throne of God and then accuse us. Look at that one who says that he's a believer. Look at that saint who claims the name of Jesus. Look at how she sins. You say in your word, Jehovah, the wages of sin is death. Give that one what they deserve. Death. What a creep. So there he is, accusing us, accusing the brethren before the throne of God. But who is he? He's Satan. He's the devil. He's a fallen angel. He's the father of lies. And he has no standing before the court of God. The verdict has already been rendered. And that's what Paul emphasizes in those words, it is God who justifies. And we saw that in the first five chapters of the book of Romans, the doctrine of justification by faith. God justifies by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, apart from our works, 
apart from anything that we ever did or will do. It's an alien righteousness that's outside of us. It's not of us. In fact, God justifies us because of the very righteousness of God that he grants to us, he imputes to us through faith in Jesus Christ. It's all from God. It's all of grace. And it's based on the performance, not of me, but of Jesus. God has justified us. He has pronounced us righteous. He has declared us righteous. Not on account of our own righteousness. Or else... Satan's accusations would have ground. Think about that. If our justification, our righteous standing before God, actually is based on anything that you or I do, we would be doomed because the devil in his accusations against us would have legal ground for his accusations. But he has no ground for accusing us. We've been declared righteous on the ground of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, who is called, by the way, Jesus Christ the righteous. And by the way, Jesus is not a dead justifier. Paul goes on to say in verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Remember we saw in Romans uh, chapter 8, when we were talking about the intercession of the Holy Spirit and how the, Ho the Holy Spirit is our advocate, our intercessor, our paraclete, and so is Jesus. The Holy Spirit, Jesus is our comforter. The Holy Spirit is another comforter like Jesus. Jesus intercedes for us in heaven Book of Hebrews, chapter 7 and verse 25, the Holy Spirit intercedes within us. And we saw earlier in Romans chapter 8, the internal intercession of the Holy Spirit as he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God because we don't know how to pray as we ought. But here in verse 34, the reference is to our comforter, our advocate, our in intercessor, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is in heaven, <coughs> excuse me, interceding for us at the right hand of God. Jesus Christ lives. He died for us. He was delivered up for our transgressions. And then he was raised for our justification. And then he ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high where he ever lives to make intercession for us. His blood and his righteousness always cleanse us from all of our sins. 
and the harassment that we endure from the devil and these accusations, both legitimate and false, have no standing before God because there is the living Savior, our great high priest, Jesus Christ, interceding for us at the right hand of God. No wonder, Paul says, who is to condemn? No wonder, Paul says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? The court is closed. The judge will not listen. It is finished. It is finished. Thank God. Amen. And this is really important for us to remember. Because we also know that we still sin as believers. The Apostle Paul sinned as a believer. Remember Romans chapter 7, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Can't you imagine Satan accusing Paul before the throne of God? We sin. So think about why this is so important to remember. It is God who justifies. When did God justify you? When you were good? When you were righteous? When you were on the moral upswing? and you felt like you were worthy? When did God justify you? We saw in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, that in and of ourselves, apart from Christ, we are ungodly, we are unrighteous, we are sinners, we're enemies from God, and it's, and it's in that context that Paul says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's amazing. Sam Storms, he's a contemporary pastor, labors in Oklahoma. He wrote this. God passed his favorable sentence on you, justified you. God passed his favorable sentence on you in full view of all your depravity and shortcomings. Who then can challenge his verdict? God justified you with his eyes wide open. He knew the worst about you at the time when he accepted you through faith for Jesus' sake. What can anyone tell God about you that he doesn't already know? Isn't that great? That's amazing to me. No wonder that 
that Paul asks the fourth rhetorical question. And again, there's really two rhetorical questions in verses 35 through 36, but but it boils down to one. In light of all of this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then here's some examples. Here are some things that we might imagine would separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And by the way, all of those things the Apostle Paul himself experienced. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It was the love of Christ that compelled the the apostles to preach the gospel to a lost world, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 14. Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 19 was that the believers in Ephesus would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And it is the love of Christ That's our present experience as believers. That's what we have been saved for. That's what we have been called to. Not to know Jesus from a distance. We're so glad, Jesus, that you died in my place and you rose again, but let's have this relationship at a distance. Don't stick your nose into my life. No, he loved us and now we love him. We love Jesus. Even though we've not seen him, we know him and we love him. And nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Our love for Christ absolutely ebbs and flows. You know it, I know it. Sometimes it does seem like Jesus is distant. Sometimes it's true. The things of this world are too precious, too valuable to me. Sometimes I'm not thinking about Jesus. But Jesus always loves his people. Jesus always thinks about his people. Jesus always always shepherds his sheep. There's nothing that can separate us. It's an amazing promise. And then notice verse 36. Here Paul gives a citation from Psalm 44 in verse 22. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And Paul's point in picking out that particular verse from the Old Testament, out of all the verses he could have cited, he cited Psalm 44 and verse 22. Because that is what was going through the believers' minds in Rome in that particular period of time. People, Christians, believers, were being killed all day long for the sake of Christ. They were being slaughtered. 
And Paul's point is that your experience, even the experience of being killed, even the experience of being slaughtered for my sake, is not an indication of my lack of love for you. Nothing can separate you from my love, Christ says to us. Then, in verses 37 through 39, this is not a very imaginative outline title, but uh, Paul tells us that we're more than conquerors. So now, he says in verse 37, no. So that's a nice little question to his, uh, I'm sorry, answer to the rhetorical questions that he has uh, been asking. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who condemns? What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Simple answer, no. It's impossible. There's no thing, no one. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The emphasis up to this point has been on what God does. Right? God justifies, God saves, God predestines, God calls, God sanctifies, God glorifies. But now we're brought into the picture. We are more than conquerors. So in light of the, this dominating emphasis on God's grace, we're not supposed to think this is something that we do in and of ourselves, but it is something that we do. This is our role to, pay, to play. We're not passive in our own security. Paul put it this way to the Philippians, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For... It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. So when believers who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, work out their own salvation, it's God working in them. It's God willing in them. It's God accomplishing his good pleasure in them. In a similar way, Paul says here, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Which means we are called to be conquerors. We're called to face our obstacles and trials and hindrances, everything that, that would keep us from the love of Christ. Conquer it. Because we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's God who preserves us, but we're called to persevere through faith. Then listen to this. For I am sure 
that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers, we've already mentioned the devil, nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come. Sometimes we fear the future. We're afraid, we're anxious, we worry about tomorrow. Paul says, I'm sure that things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, unless unless he left something out, nor anything else in all creation. What does that include? Everything. There's God, who's eternal, he's the creator, and then there's creation. There's nothing in all creation that will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Think about it. Can you think of anything that doesn't fit in one of those buckets? The trial that you're going through right now a health trial maybe, a financial trial, an an emotional trial, a relational trial. There is nothing in all creation that will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That doesn't mean that when we're going through those trials, we can see clearly to fit the puzzle pieces together, to see how it's actually for our ultimate good. No, faith says that even though I don't see it and I don't understand it, and I have questions, God, In spite of our lack of understanding and comprehension, we believe, we trust that God loves us, that Jesus Christ loves us. There's a hymn that we sing. It's a beautiful hymn. And frankly, we probably wouldn't sing it except that Bob Coughlin, a modern-day hymn writer, has uh, taken that old hymn that has kind of a hard-to-sing melody and set it to, to new music. It's called A Debtor to Mercy Alone. Augustus Toplady, who lived in the 1700s, and by the way, struggled with depression. Augustus Toplady wrote in A Debtor to Mercy Alone, here's a second stanza, the the work which his goodness began, the arm of his strength will complete. And by the way, the theme verse for that hymn in the Trinity hymnal is Philippians 1 and verse 6, where Paul says, For I am confident that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. 
The work which his goodness began, the arm of his strength will complete. His promise is yes and amen and never was forfeited yet. Now listen to this. Things future, nor things that are now, nor all things below or above can make him his purpose forego or sever my soul from his love. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What an indescribable gift.